Welcome, everyone. Welcome to this uh, special edition of World Canvas. My name is Downing Thomas. I'm Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs here at the University of Iowa. And this is a wonderful occasion uh, to present the International Impact Award, which is an award that goes to someone every year, uh, an alumnus or alumna or a friend of the University of Iowa who has made an impact, a significant impact internationally or globally uh, to improve um, the lives and livelihoods of people around the world uh, through new discoveries, through spreading joy, as our, uh, our awardee this year has done over many years. And so it's my pleasure to welcome you tonight. Um, and I have the honor of introducing uh, President Bruce Harrell, the 21st president of the University of Iowa, who will introduce our awardee, our special awardee uh, tonight. It's no secret that Simon Estes, but uh, Bruce, I think you'll have the substance of the introduction tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Downing, and thank all of you for turning out here this evening. This is a, a remarkable opportunity to celebrate a remarkable citizen of our university, our state, our country, and the world. It's my great honor to be part of this, uh, particularly since this is the International Program, International Impact Award, and it's also during the International Education Week. This is a very special moment across our campus. Tonight, we get to celebrate an internationally renowned opera singer, Simon Estes. He's a Centerville, Iowan, native and graduate of this university. His exceptional music talents were immediately recognized when he joined the university's old gold singers as an undergraduate. After earning a bachelor's degree from our university, his talent led him to a full scholarship at Juilliard School of Music. Mr. Estes's uh, operatic debut of uh, Ramphis in, in Aida at the Deutsche Oper Berlin in 1965 launched a truly remarkable international career. Mr. Estes is part of a group of performers who were instrumental in helping to break down the barriers of racial prejudice in the world of opera. He was the first black man to sing a leading role at the prestigious Bayreuth Festival when he performed the title role in Wagner's The Flying Dutchman. He has given performances in 84 of the world's greatest opera houses, has sung for six U.S. presidents, as well as Pope John Paul II. He helped open the 1972 Olympics in Munich and sang, the South Africa, sang in South Africa in the 2010 opening of the World Cup. And that is just a small, small touch of what he has done around the world truly notable performances. Aside from his many master classes throughout the country and internationally, Simon Estes has also taught music at Wartburg College, Iowa State University, Des Moines uh, Area Community College, and Boston University, just to name a few. His, his grandfather was a slave and father a coal miner. As a result, he's always mindful of the life-changing role philanthropy has played in his own life and has created numerous educational scholarships and foundations around the world to benefit children and students, including the Simon Estes Fund here at the University of Iowa. 
in 2008 in response to the tragic tornado and flooding here in this area. Mr. Estes performed benefit concerts for the citizens of Parkersburg and Waverly, Iowa. He also raises funds for the United Nations Foundation's Nothing But Nets organization to fight malaria. For those efforts, he's received a Lifetime Impact Award in 2017 from the United Nations Foundation. Here in Iowa, Simon has received, among many honors and distinctions, the Iowan Award, which is the state's highest honor, and the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Achievement Award. The university presented him with a Distinguished Alumni Award 41 years ago in 1978. We thank Simon for his creative and tireless work on behalf of the world's people. And we express our deepest appreciation for his continued fruitful relationship with the University of Iowa. It's now my great honor to help present this year's International Impact Award to Simon Estes. Now, please invite Mr. Estes to the podium to receive the award. I'm deeply humbled and honored to receive this wonderful award. The University of Iowa means a lot to me, and we'll talk about it later, but this evening I love the uh, two words that represents this organization. Impact means you have an influence or a force, and the word canvas means that it covers the whole world. So I like those two words that's associated, but I want to thank the president, the dean, and all of the faculty members here. It's wonderful to be in this auditorium. It wasn't here when I was here back in the mid-1950s. But North Hall, I understand, is still there. Is that true? Okay. Well, thank you again for the award, Mr. President. I, I want to thank you and your wife. My wife and I thank you both for a beautiful dinner and all of the other wonderful people who were there. So God bless all of you, and we'll continue, I guess. Thank you. A big thank you to uh, President Harold and also to Dean Thomas from International Programs for getting us started tonight. Uh, this is a very special world canvas for us. I've uh, met Simon Estes uh, first in your recordings, having worked in a public radio station for many years and enjoyed your voice. And then we communicated as we were getting ready for this program. Always gracious, always so helpful and kind. And um, uh, there's nothing more we can say about that, except I bet about two-thirds of the people in this room already know that about you. So um, we want to learn a little more about you, your life in music, also the very important background you had as you grew up here in Iowa and, and how that sort of forged the person you have become later in your life. Then also some of the philanthropic efforts you've been involved with in these last many years. So let's start with where you grew up. 
Well, I grew up in a little town called Centerville, Iowa. I'm sure many of you know that. It's a coal mining town, and uh, I went to school there. My family were, was very important in my life. My grandfather, as many of you know, was a slave, sold for $500. And he couldn't read or write, but he came to Centerville, my father did, from his father. My grandfather was born in 1837 in Kentucky. And as we know, this is the year 2019. It was exactly 400 years ago this year that black slaves were brought over from Africa. And my grandfather was born, as I said, in 1837 in Kentucky. And he and his wife, who was also a slave, migrated to Missouri. And from Missouri, they came to Iowa. And my mother was born in Centerville, Iowa in 1910. And my father was born in Missouri in 1891. My foundation is built on faith, education, and music. We were very, very poor, economically speaking, but we were very wealthy in our love for God and for fellow man and the importance of education. As I said, my father couldn't read or write. He was taken out of school when he was in the third reader. And back in those days, in the colored schools, they didn't call them grades. They called them readers, but a third reader meant third grade. But needless to say, the, we were colored also in those days. The schools were quite inferior to the others. So my father literally could not read or write. My mother taught him to read a little bit when they got married, and just a few passages from the Bible. But he knew the value of an education, and he stressed education to my three older sisters and me, the importance of education. And we also were taught to have faith, to believe in God, and to be loving not only to God but to one another. As I said, we were very poor in our little house. It's still is there, the house in which I was born in 1938. So those of you who are good in math, and I know that the president is very good with math and figures. <laughs> and um, it was a little house that was 27 feet by 25 feet. And there's a family of six lived there, three older sisters, my mother, my father, and the little house is still there. It's 910 East Jackson Street in Centerville. It's right on the corner. And I was delivered by Dr. Brummett. And Dr. Brummett and my father knew each other in Missouri before both of them came to Centerville. He was a medical doctor. My father came there to work in the coal mines. But what is ironic is Dr. Brummett delivered me from my mother in that little house at 910 East Jackson Street. And what I said before, ironic, means that Dr. Brummett, 
breastfed on my grandmother. She was a wet nurse, and she delivered me. And of course, they were Caucasian. And those of us who are advanced citizens, maybe some of the younger people don't know about this, but they had a lot of wet nurses back in those days. And I knew Dr. Brummett. He lived to be about 100 years of age. My parents stressed always to me education, faith, and music. And I feel very blessed that I was born economically poor and that I was born with a slightly darker tone of skin because it enabled me to know what life is about and that we are all human beings. So that's kind of the history, let's say, of my birth. And I graduated, of course, out of high school in Centerville in 1956. Went one year to junior college, as it was called, in Centerville. In 1957, I transferred to the University of Iowa. We had a little beat-up upright piano in our home in Centerville. My mother played the piano. We went to church two times on Sundays back in those days, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. My father knew the value of education, even though he didn't have a formal education. And he said, son, you must get an education. That is something that nobody can ever take away from you. My mother was the talker in our family. And she finished 11th grade. And I remember she always said she was so sad that she didn't get her high school diploma. But for a colored person to achieve an 11th grade education is already an achievement. But my mother was the one who did the talking. My father, I learned from him from the power of example. He was a quiet man, kind of like Abraham Lincoln. But when he spoke, he spoke with authority and with love. He never, ever yelled or raised his voice at my mother or my three older sisters or me. But he was a hardworking man, the little house we grew up in. We didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have indoor facilities, and you know what I mean. And you know how cold it gets in Iowa. <laughs> and it was even colder back then before the climate change. <clears throat> but we were a closely knitted family. When I was 11 years old, my, my mother said, son, how would you like to read the Bible through with me? And I said, well, okay. She said, all we have to do is read three chapters a day and five on Sunday, and we will complete it in a year. So when I was 11 years of age, I was introduced to the greatest book ever written, thousands of years old. And it's a beautiful book because it gives us guidelines how to live our lives. And the fundamental of this great book called the Bible is to love God and then to love one another. My oldest daughter gave me a heart that was able to stand 
A number of years ago, my oldest daughter, Jennifer, and it says, love is the music of the soul. When I work with young people, I often tell them, I'm kind of skipping ahead now, but to make sure that they don't only sing with the technique that is cerebral and intellectual, but I tell them to sing from their hearts and their souls. So we'll go back now to Centerville. And uh, from there, I came here, but I'll let you ask some more questions. Oh, sure. So, so just to move ahead, uh, there's much more we can say about your young life, and feel free to go back to that. But when you did come here to the University of Iowa, as I understand it, you didn't come with the intention to be in the School of Music. You were intending to study medicine. Yes. When I was in Centerville, I sang the first time in the Second Baptist Church a solo, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. But when I was in high school, in elementary school, the, the principal was also the music teacher, and it was Ellen Clark. And so the students who had, I guess what she thought, the nicest voices could come sit in the front. And of course, I didn't realize it then that I had a talent to sing. I just didn't. So she said, you come sit in the front. When I was in junior high school, the high school choral director, Don Gunderson was his name, he invited me, or asked the principal, first of all, at the junior high school, could Simon Estes come sing in the high school choir? And that had never been done before. So the principal allowed it, the junior high school was just kind of across the street. So I went over and sang with the high school students, and I sang first soprano with the girls. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> and... Well, I enjoyed sitting with the girls, too. <laughs> but I sang first soprano. I played football, basketball, track, all the sports. And Don Gunderson was always a little bit sad because I, they had competitions then. I don't know if they still do, that they do it with the quartet and soloists, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would enter, he would enter me, and it was in Cedar Falls, which used to be called Iowa Teachers College. Yeah. And I never won a prize, and he was always frustrated. And I asked Don Gunderson when we were driving one time up to, from Centerville to Cedar Falls, do you think I could ever earn a living by being a singer? And he said, yes. But of course, I was thinking in terms of Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, yeah. Bing Crosby, Perry Como, that type of music. In my senior year, during the summertime, I worked jobs. I did all kinds of jobs. I won't bore you with all of that. But I went to choir rehearsal, and I hadn't done any singing during the summer. And I went to sing, and <laughs> I didn't have my soprano voice. And I was about 18 years of age. And so Don Gunderson sent me to the doctor. <laughs> and we didn't have any throat specialists in Centerville, Iowa in those days. And uh, he put his little wooden stick and pushed my tongue down. He never even saw my vocal cords, as I know now, but he just looked in my throat. He said, I don't see anything wrong with your throat. And I didn't even know about vocal cords then, obviously, I really didn't. 
He said, I just have a feeling your voice is changing. And that's what happened. And so I thought, well, there goes my singing career. No more, no more Nat King Cole or Perry Como. So I thought I would, I went to junior college one year in Centerville, and I transferred to the University of Iowa, and I thought, well, I can't sing, so I'll be a doctor. So I was in pre-med. So that brought me up to that part. But while I was there, here, I said there, but now I'm here. Aha. <laughs> I wanted to sing. Now, don't be upset. This a little bit sounds like a sad story, but it has a happy ending, okay? <laughs> I wanted to sing in the university choir, and the choral director wouldn't let me sing in the choir. He said, uh, your voice isn't good enough to sing in the choir, the big choir. I said, oh, well, you're the head of the voice department. Could I take voice lessons with you? He said, no, 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 you have no talent. I wouldn't waste my time with you. He said, however, there's a young teacher coming here this fall. And he said, maybe he will take you. I said, okay, I didn't care. I just wanted to sing. And that was Charles Kellis. I know there's one person here that does know who Charles Kellis was and still is because he'll be 93 years of age in April. And Mr. Kellis heard me singing. I'd already been, so I couldn't sing the university choir. But he did say there's another group on campus called the Old Gold Singers. And so he said, maybe you can sing in that group because that's for non-music majors. And I said, okay, I just want to sing. So Mr. Kellis heard me one time. He said he was walking down a corridor, and he said, and I didn't know this. He just told me this, really, three years ago. He said, I heard your voice, and he used the word penetrating through the door. Didn't mean anything to me, you know. And so he started giving me voice lessons, and I didn't have money to pay him for private lessons. But he would give me voice lessons sometimes for two, three hours a day. He'd always want me to go in North Hall when it was empty. And I wouldn't be sitting here today had it not been for Charles Kellis. He said, you know you have a voice to sing opera. And I said, having come from Centerville, what's opera? <laughs> he played some recordings for me of opera singers, Cesare Sieppi, who was a fantastic Italian-based baritone, the very famous Maria Callas, Leontine Price, and Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. That's a symphonic piece of music. So the big 33 and the thirds, he played those records for me. And when I finished listening, I said to Mr. Kellis, and I was very serious, I said, you know, Mr. Kellis, I really like that stuff. <laughs> I really said stuff. I was from Centerville, remember. <laughs> and he said, you know, you need to go to an all-musical school. But I want to stick here with Iowa City for just a little bit. They were some of the happiest days of my life when I left Centerville and came to Iowa City. I loved the atmosphere of education. And I always did like school, and I was even in Centerville. I never even wanted to catch a cold. 
for me it's the day of school. I just loved going to school. And so Mr. Kellos was a man who discovered me. But I would also, I just saw a man here when I was coming in who was with the Methodist Church. Is that right back there? Yeah. Is that John? John Backus. He's a Greek, but that's okay. <laughs> Mr. Kellos is also Greek. But this man really was so wonderful to me. And he said, Simon, you can have a career singing opera. So he got brings an audition for me at Juilliard School of Music. But still, while I was here, before I got there, I needed to earn some money to fly out to New York. And presidents are very important, Mr. President. And they have a lot of power. So Mr. Kellos went to President Hancher because something had, that had never been done before. He asked President Hancher, could Simon Estes sing a concert and raise money in order to make enough money to fly out to New York and audition for Juilliard School of Music? And the person who asked President Hancher, his name was Fred Duhart. Fred Duhart was from Northwestern University, but he was originally from Orlando, Florida. He was a big, tall, six foot ten black kid student from Florida, and he went to Northwestern. I tell you this because it's an interesting story. Fred had an impact on my life, too. He was the one that went to President Hancher and asked him. He said, Simon Estes, Mr. President, can really chirp. That's what Fred <laughs> said. <laughs> and so the president said yes. So they made it possible that I could sing a concert in the Methodist Church. And we raised $287 to help get me to New York City. But I want to tell you a story about Fred Duhart. I told you it was this big black, well, we were colored in those days, and later we became Negro with a little N, and then a capital N, and then I think black, and then Afro-American, and then African-American. I really don't know what I am, but I'm, I do know that I am a child of God's, and I'm a human being. So Fred Duhart got a scholarship to play basketball and football at Northwestern, and during the game, he got his neck broken, the third vertebrae, which is unfortunately the worst. I'm telling this because Fred Duhart is the one that went to the president. And so the doctors told Fred he would never, ever walk again. And Fred Duhart said to me, he, said, he always called me, we say Simon Estes, but he always called me Simon Estes. He said, Simon Estes, he said, and his name was Fred Duhart, and he called himself the Do. He said, the Do looked up at those doctors and said, the Do will walk again. <laughs> Not only did Fred Duhart walk again, but he even played basketball. And all the doctors said it was a miracle. You know, Northwestern is a fine institution. 
And um, Fred played basketball, but they said, don't ever play football. So Fred graduated from Northwestern with a C average, grade point average. And he wanted to be a doctor. Can you imagine and a big, tall, colored guy with a C average wanting to get in medical school? No school accepted him. They wouldn't even give him an interview. But the medical school at the University of Iowa gave him an interview. You know, some of you here, he, you know, remember a doctor named Paul Shorty Paul, they called him? Some of you remember Shorty Paul? Yeah. He discovered Bufferin. He was the head of the medical school. All the doctors said, no, we just can't. I mean, guy doesn't even have a B average. He's got a C average. So they all said no. They called him Shorty Paul because he was only about five feet tall. It's really true. And Shorty Paul said, I'm going to overrule all of you. He said, I like the way this man presented himself. He said, what do we have to lose if we give him one semester? Well, Fred Duhart was accepted here at the University of Iowa and became a doctor. And it was Fred Duhart who went to the president. For me, we were roommates. And president said, Hansher said, okay, Fred, he can, he can do a concert. So that's something that is meaningful. When I came to Iowa City, I also worked a job in the, with the Iowa City Press Citizen. I'd work from 12 midnight till 6.30 in the morning, those big plates with all of the letters. I worked in the dormitory washing pots and pans. There was a drugstore here called Jack Lubin's. John Backers, you probably remember that. Remember Lubin's drugstore? I worked there and Jack didn't pay me any money, but he said, I'll let you have two meals a day. And it was okay. And so I was always happy in spite of, we had discrimination. Let's just face it, back in 1950s and early 60s, right here, all over Iowa. But I never did learn to hate. My mother always told me, don't ever hate, son. And I'll give you just two little examples that I was taught when I was a young boy. If I would come home and tell my mother that a white boy called me the N-word, or he hit me, my mother said, son, now you get down on your knees and you pray for that boy. Well, when you're seven, eight years of age, you think there's something wrong with your mother. You know, say, mother, he, he hit me. He called, get down on your knees and you pray. And my parents never did tell us anything negative about white people. The strongest statement or question in whatever way you want to interpret it is this is what my mother said. She said, son, I just don't know why those white people treat us colored people this way. That was the strongest statement she ever said about white people. And she just always said, pray for them. And that played an important part when I started singing opera. I know I'm skipping ahead again, but I was singing all over Europe, 
Paris, <laughs> London, Rome, Vienna, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the opera houses would let me sing here. I was living in New York City. This was in the early 70s, around 71, 72. And I said to my, I called my mother. I was living in New York, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, admitted me in, but I was, I was, I was crying tears. I said, I've sung in all these places, but they won't let me sing in my own country. And you know what my mother said, don't you? She was said, now, son, you get that on your knees and you pray. So I've sung in all the major opera houses in the United States. That's the power of prayer. And it's also the power of never hating anyone. We can hate what people do, but we must not hate another fellow human being. And my parents installed that in me when I was a little boy, and it paid off. I remember there was a bishop in Iowa City, Iowa State, or, I mean, in Ames, rather, and had lunch with him. He was a bishop over all of the Methodist churches in the mid part of the United States. And he asked me once, he said, Simon, why don't you have hate in your heart. And I very quickly said to him, I don't have any room for hate. But I'm grateful that my parents gave me these values, parts of our character in life. So now I'll go back to you. You can ask another question, because I didn't know. <laughs> well, well, we can kind of stick with this a part of your life when you have now graduated from Juilliard and you have, to your surprise, while still a student, received a contract. Uh, you might tell this story of how your work began in Europe, how, how you had such a strong career in Europe, partly because you were kept out of the opera world here. But as you told me on the phone, you had the experience of racism on both sides of the ocean. Yes, that's for sure. Is it still working? Okay. Um, I started out in Berlin as a president said at the Deutsche Oper. I made my debut in Ramfus in Ferry's opera, Aida. And I sung in all these major opera houses. And I came back to the States. And I, you know that situation. But when I, I want to back up to when I flew out to Juilliard, because I, for those music students here, you might find it a little interesting. Number one, I was so naive about classical music, et cetera, et cetera. I, and my parents never taught me fear. Only fear they said you have to have, son, is you fear the Lord. And that doesn't mean this type of nervousness, but reverence. And so when I went out to Juilliard to audition, I didn't have enough sense for fear to even be nervous. I thought singing for those people, that jury sitting out there, you know, it's like a couple of four or five teachers from Centerville High School. So I sang my three songs and my three arias. And after I finished, the head of the jury at Juilliard told me just to wait outside the door. So I went out and they called me back in. Actually, I gotta tell you something, I was more excited about seeing the skyscrapers in New York than I was <laughs> auditioning for Juilliard. So I went out and they called me back in. And this to show you the naivety that I had. They said, well, we've decided we want to give you a full scholarship to come to Juilliard. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> they looked at me like I was some kind of a nut, but you know, 
And then they have the niceness to say, and we'll get you a grant from the Rockefeller family. And I thought, family dealing in rocks. <laughs> but it was the Rockefeller family, Martha Baird Rockefeller Foundation. So I feel that my whole destiny was already planned for me by God before I was born, because all of these, Ellen Clark in high school, Don Gunderson in high school, Charles Kellis at the University of Iowa, Juilliard School of Music, it was all prearranged, I think, really. And so um, I have been very, very blessed and as the president mentioned, I have sung all around the world, as you know. And in addition to the 84 opera houses, I've sung with 115 orchestras. I've sung 102 roles in opera. That's for the music students, so there's a lot of repertoire out there for you. But I have sung 102 roles in German, Italian, French, Russian, Spanish, Catalan. I didn't know that God had given me a talent for languages, because I never studied any of those languages. And I've sung in them, I've, I've recorded in all of them. And I didn't know I had a talent to memorize either. Because when I auditioned to get into the Deutsche Open West Berlin, is that the part of that story that you eventually wanted me to tell you about? And I went off on another trail. Okay, while I was at Juilliard, I met a girlfriend. And she graduated in 1964, and I was still a student at Juilliard. So I wanted to see her at Christmas time, but of course I didn't have any money. And I said to her, I said, try to find somebody for me to sing for. I said, because I have to tell the truth, and I'll see if I can go someplace and raise enough money to go come over to Germany. She was in Dusseldorf. And so she had an agent herself, and she told this agent about me. I, I don't know what she said, but I guess she said this guy must have a nice voice or something. So I went to the NAACP. Now, advanced people, citizens, you know what the NAACP, okay? And young people, ask them, your neighbor if that person is a little advanced. And so I go into the NAACP again. This is good that you're not nervous and you're not scared. Centerville was good to me because even though we had a lot of racial discrimination, I just never learned fear. So I go to, and Roy Wilkins was the president of the NAACP. So I went down there in New York in one of these big buildings. I walked in, receptionist, may I help you? I said, well, yes, I'd like to talk about somebody to talk with someone when I need to get some money. I said, to go to Europe and sing an audition. And of course, she looked at me like I was a stray dog with the mange or something. And uh, she said, well, we don't really have funds for something like that. I said, well, but it's a really special opportunity. Could I just talk to someone? So she said, well, OK. So she let me go talk with someone. And I talked to this individual. And they said, well, we just really don't have funds for that. I said, but I'm a student at Juilliard School of Music. Juilliard School of Music? I said, yes, oh. So then I explained what I was doing. And so they said, we don't have funds for this, but we like the way you presented yourself. So we're going to take up a collection in the office. 
I thought I was in a colored church. <laughs> they, they, they collected in the opener back in those days, $300 was a lot of money, a little over $300. And then they said, go to the New York, New York Community Trust Fund and tell them that we sent you there and they'll give you some more money. So I went there and they gave me some more money so I didn't have to come over to the general union audition. But the main reason is I wanted to see my girlfriend. But I didn't tell them that. No, 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 no. And I got a contract, and she didn't, so we broke up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So then, so you're still a student at Juilliard at this time. I was still a student at Juilliard. Okay, oh, yeah. I yeah. came back. I, I, okay, they offered me this. I auditioned for this agent, Friedrich Posh in Düsseldorf. He sends me to Berlin, the Deutsche Oper. Still naive, Simon Essis walks out on the stage and the Deutsche Oper's like the Metropolitan Opera in New York. I walked out there and sang my arias. And they said, uh, okay, come down. I come down off the stage. They said, we'd like you to sing Bromphus in Aida on the 19th of April, 1965. And uh, once again, I said, okay. <laughs> and so... I was, so, and I was a student at Juilliard, so I went back to New York, and I went to Dean Waldrop. He was the dean, and uh, Peter Menon was the president of Juilliard at that time. So I went to the dean, and I said, Dean Waldrop, I've got a chance to sing Romphus, the high priest in Aida, the Deutsche Oper. He said, well, Simon, you'll have to tell them no. He said, because if you don't finish Juilliard School of Music, you'll never have a career. Well, my poor little heart just sank. So I thought, I'll overrule you. I'll go see Christopher West. He's the head of the opera theater at Juilliard. So I go to Christopher West, and I tell him, because I knew he would understand. And Christopher West, he was British from Britain, but he was head of the opera theater. Well, Simon, he said, I'll tell you this. You'll have to tell them no, because if you don't finish Juilliard School of Music, you shall never have a career. Sinking hard again. But something said, go east, young man, go east. So I left Juilliard, and I went to Berlin and sang. They told me, they first when I auditioned, I was to sing The King in Aida. The King is a nice bass role, but Romphus is the high priest. That's the main bass role in the whole opera. And I arrived there about 12 days before I made my debut on the 19th. And the director said I had to sing Romphus. And I'd learned the king. And it was in German and not Italian. So I called my Mr. Kellis in New York. He said, Simone. He always called me Simone. He said, I don't understand this. He said, I said, well, I don't either, Mr. Kellis. I said, because he said, you've learned... Romf, uh, the king. He said, work hard, Simon, you can do it. Although he did say Simone. I learned that role in 11 days. I had never sung on a stage before in my life or with an orchestra. And this is why I know there's a God. Because <laughs> God gave me the talent to sing, and he gave me a talent to memorize and for languages, and I didn't know that because I didn't study any languages. So I, I learned it, 
I didn't meet the conductor, Giuseppe Patane, an Italian conductor, until after the opera. He came to my dressing room and he said, Simon, nobody told me you'd never sung the role before. He said, I would have worked with you, but he said, you did all right. And I never met the lady named Gloria Davy who sang Aida until on the stage that night. What they did, they put me in a rehearsal room all alone with the pianist and assistant stage director. And they said, well, during this scene, you're here. And when, you, when Aida comes in, you go over there. Like, I didn't meet any of my colleagues until I saw them on the night of the performance. This is the honest truth. Knowing what I know now, I could never have done it. But I was naive, okay? So all those, Richard Cassidy, some of you probably know that name. He's a famous tenor. He sang Rodermes. I sang the high priest. And Ruth Hesse, an Italian mezzo, sang Amneris. So after the performance, Mr. Kellis had asked me to be sure and call him, let him know how it went. And see, Mr. Kellis told me, he said, Simone, you can learn it. So I called him afterwards. He said, how did it go? I said, well, it went okay. And they've asked me to stay here and sing some more roles. And I didn't know really that God, that's why I give all the praise and glory to God. He's the one who gave me the talent to sing, to memorize, to learn languages, and all of that, really. Because today, knowing what I know now, I don't know how I did it. I really don't. So that's how I got to Berlin, the Berlin at the Deutsche Oper. Now, at this time, you've already explained that you weren't able to sing. A black man was not able to sing in major opera houses mm -hmm. here in the United States. And that was true for some time during your career. Yes. I got with Columbia Artist Management in 1965-66 because I went to Moscow and I got the bronze medal in the Tchaikovsky competition in 1966. President Johnson invited me to sing at the, come sing at the White House and went out and sang in Hollywood Bowl, etc. But a lot of the opera houses and orchestras wouldn't, orchestras wouldn't let me sing. And so I remember, I told you I called my mother about this. But eventually I told Columbia, I said, I want to sing. They, they would never book me in the South. I said, but I feel I have a right to sing all over the United States. They said, well, Simon, it may not be safe for you. I said, I'll take that chance. So they did get me some dates in the South. And I can still remember my compass, his name was Harold Brown. He was a big, tall, white guy, taller than I. And we were sitting in a restaurant and these three white guys come in, and this was in South Carolina, and they said, look at that nigger sitting here eating in this restaurant. And Harold was about as big as Mr. Beeman right here. And Harold started to say something. I said, Harold, don't say anything. Let's just keep eating and pretending that we're enjoying our food because we have to walk out of here. And they were three rednecks. I was staying in a hotel one night in another of the southern states, and I had my tails on, the white tie, and I got in the elevator. And a white lady got in the elevator, and she looked at me, and she said, boy, what did you do with it? I said, what are you talking about? She said, we know you stole the jewelry on the, the lady's room on the fourth floor, the fourth floor. 
I was the only colored person, of course, in that whole hotel except those who were cleaning rooms, etc. I said, do I look like a thief? She said, that don't make no difference. I said, aha, uh -huh, double negative. She's not very well educated. So anyhow, um, I said, I didn't take the lady's jewelry. She said, well, we're going to search your room. Another time I was in another city, and the patrolman followed the accompanist me from the airport to the hotel. While we, we checked in, came down to eat, he walked over to the restaurant. He said, I just wanted to let you know I'm keeping my eyes on you boys. So I went through a lot of that. But still, um, I didn't hate it. I didn't like what the, book, the, the way the people treated me. But I still didn't hate them. And all of that is what started when I was a little boy that my parents taught me to be courageous, to be strong, and to be forgiving. Even if somebody does something wrong and they apologize or whatever, you have to forgive them. And I think a lot of this is because of music and education. And this is why I stress education so much because that gives us the capacity to learn to reason, to try to think, and to communicate. This international impact award, as I said before, I, I liked those two words, impact, and the canvas, like covering the whole world. I only thought about that today. But we are only we all are human beings, and having traveled, I've sung on every continent on Earth except the Antarctic. And I say the penguins haven't invited me there, <laughs> but they're black and white, and they get along. <laughs> Isn't that nice? But what I have learned in having sung in Australia, New Zealand, Africa, everywhere. We are all God's children. And one of the professors, I took a course here at the University of Iowa in theology. And I remember something that a professor said. I wish I could remember his name, but I don't. He said something very interesting. I've shared this with a number of people. And my wife has heard it. My friend Harry Stein has heard about this. I said, you know, he said, Civilization began someplace in what we, Northeast Africa, going up in that part of the world. And he said, the people who remained in that area for thousands of years, their skin became dark, exposed to the sun. He said, but their palms were light and the bottoms of their feet because they weren't exposed to the sun. This was a professor right here at the University of Iowa. And he said their nostrils became whiter because heat air, hot air rises. And he said the body made an adaptation to the climate. So the nostrils widened to get in more air. And then he said the people who had kept going farther north, he said their nostrils became more narrow to make the adaptation to the cold weather, or perhaps their lungs would not be able to handle the cold temperature. And then he said the people who went farther east, what we call Asia, he said those people, this was a professor here at the University of Iowa, he said 
a lot of those people lived in caves as they did even in the Mideast, you know. And so he said, what do you do when you go into a dark room? What? I heard a better diction. Give me the whole word now. Squint. Are you a student? Give him an A. <laughs> you squint. And he said, so, so over thousands of years, people doing this all the time. He said, it's called levator propibe superioris, an extra layer of skin formed in the upper eyelid. And he said, they can go to a plastic surgeon and have that removed, and their eye will look like yours or mine. Now, I thought about that all these years, and I still think it was a wonderful, logical explanation. And we know that the Native American Indians, they were Asia, Russia, the Bering Strait, they went across over there. And that's how the original Native Americans, what we call Indians, they came from Asia. But what I, what I really believe, all of this was prearranged by God, and he made us different to test our characters. Can we love someone if they look different from the way we look? And that's a test that we are doing better, but we're still not completely educated yet enough to realize that we are all, there's only one race, and that is the human race. And I say this because of having traveled all around the world, Africa, South America, China, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, we're all human beings. And so my philosophy, I do a lot of lectures all around the world, even at your old alma mater, Harvard University, and Duke University, and Conservatory in Moscow, Australia, New Zealand. I share with young people what I have learned from people who were wiser than I am. My mother always said, son, always put the Lord first. And she said, always remember this. You can always be hurt by someone in life. But there's one person who will never betray you and never hurt you, never hurt you, and that's God, for those of us who are Christians, Christians. And that has helped me my whole life because I have been disappointed. I've been discriminated against. I learned to cope with it. Even as a little boy in Centerville when I was growing up, we couldn't swim in the swimming pool with white people. Then eventually they would let us swim on Saturdays from 9 o'clock until 11. And then we had to get out of the pool and they would put more disinfectant in the water. We were not allowed to sit with people, white people downstairs in the movie theater. We had to sit up in a corner where the projector room was and the toilets were, were, toilets were and they call it the crow's nest. We had to sit up there. A lot of the restaurants we couldn't eat in in Centerville, Iowa. But through all of this, my wonderful Christian mother and father just said, just pray for them. And this has been a, a quality that I learned at a young age 
And had it not been for music, this talent that God gave me to sing, and if I had perhaps had not been born this skin color, I don't know if I would be the same person that I am today. I'd like to think I would have been, but I, and I do still think that. But nonetheless, the reality, that's what happened. But music has enabled me to learn in life. And music started thousands of years ago. And if you read the Bible, when my wife and I, who's sitting right over there, got married, we decided to read the Bible through in our first year of marriage, three chapters a day and five on Sunday. And it was so good, we finished it in seven months. And then another time, we both read it through together. I was away singing someplace. My wife was here in Iowa, and she went to church and said, the minister said, why don't all you members out there read the Bible through? You can do it chronologically or Genesis through Revelation. So my wife told me this, and I came home. Being an obedient husband, my wife said, we have to read the Bible through again. And so she did it chronologically, and I did it Genesis through Revelation. And this book, I promise all of you, if you haven't read it, it's a bestseller. And what it does, it's basically very simple. Even in the Old Testament, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he is the first one. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second one, and this is in the New Testament also, love your neighbor as yourself. And love is the presence of God inside of us. And God is good, and good is God, and God is love, and love is God. So if you love someone, you're not going to hurt them. You're going to be kind. You're going to help them. And if they do do something not nice to you, you're going to forgive them. My daddy didn't have the formal education, but he had a spiritual education. And my mother had an education. She had spiritual and academic. And so my parents taught my sister and me this at a very young age. And that's why, actually, I'm even sitting here today, is because education was stressed to me by my parents. And when I was in high school, E.W. Fannin, who was a superintendent of all the schools, called me over to his house one time to have some lemonade and cake. And I thought, what have I done now that the superintendent is inviting me over to his house? But I went over, and a teacher, even though he was the superintendent, E.W. Fannin, said, Simon, I want to tell you something. He said, if you continue to study hard and keep your nose to the grindstone. He said, you're going to be somebody someday. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Fannin. But I had positive input from my parents and my school teachers. And this is why I tell people, education is so important. It says in the book of Proverbs, right at the beginning, it says, get knowledge. What is knowledge? Knowledge is education. It's teachers. And he says, get understanding. Understanding is putting knowledge into practice, into action. And he said, above all, get wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. 
And so these three attributes, do you realize if we just followed those to love God and love each other, we'd have heaven on earth. Did you have another question? I'm sorry, I, my no, wife. No, no, no. no, no. Well, <laughs> no. my wife's heard all this, you know, <laughs> poor wives. But you know what? I was at Boston University for many years as a professor out there, and I also, as I said, did lectures over at Harvard at your old alma mater. My wife said, Simon, you need to slow down. This was about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. So we thought about it, and she said, why don't you go out to Iowa and just help children in Iowa, because we've been helping children really all around the world, et cetera, et cetera. So being obedient husband, we came back to Iowa. And that's when I started raising money, and I've always been a professor at Iowa State for many years, over 20 years, and I'm a professor now at DMACC College in, in Des Moines, where they've got six campuses. But I, I love to work with students, and I love to share what I have learned with young people and hope to be a good citizen. You have your international impact. Of course, international means all around the world, as I said. And I like that, and I never thought of it until you, you wrote a letter to me and asked me would I come and accept this award. And it was very touching to me. Then when I saw the pamphlet that you had put in my hotel room, and it had the word canvas. And I thought, I wonder if you realize canvas is something that covers. And so internationalism covers the whole world. And that means there's education and there are people. So it's a good title. And impact means force in a positive use of the word impact. Well, I can tell you that it was a great thrill for us when we learned that you were this year's uh, awardee. And, of course, a pleasure to have you here to hear the stories you've told us tonight. But I'd also like to spend just a moment. You've talked, of course, about how you want to um, help educate young people and how much of your work in these last years particularly has been dedicated to that. But you have also, uh, around the world, made a real difference. Uh, President Harold mentioned that you received an award from the United Nations regarding the work you've done to help provide nets for um, people in Africa who suffer so badly from malaria. And you worked on HIV AIDS. And uh, I understand you had a very moving experience when you were in South Africa that opened your eyes to some of these, these um, needs at the time. Um, I wonder if we could close out with you just talking about some of your most special memories of people you've met or moments where you felt that real change in your spirit. Yes, I've been very blessed in having met wonderful people all around the world. I sang many times for Nelson Mandela when he was still alive, and my wife and I have been in this cell that he lives in in Robben Island, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who's the Nobel Prize winner. I'm very blessed. I've sung for seven Nobel Prize winners, and I've sung for the Nobel Prize Committee. And I think, as the president mentioned, I've actually sung for two popes at the Vatican, even though I'm not Catholic. I've sung for them. I sang for the Billy Graham Crusade. I've met some wonderful people who have right here from Iowa who are wonderful people. 
Norman Borlaug. We all know who Norman Borlaug was. I sang for him, knew him. He was, he was a great scientist. Another great scientist that I knew but didn't know him until many years when he, he retired and came back to Iowa, Dr. James Van Allen. He heard me sing when I was a student here. I didn't know he was in the audience, but I just happened to be watching television one night many years ago, and he had retired. And he and two other, I mentioned him because he's an Iowan. <laughs> he um, was with two other scientists, and they, when they were younger, they didn't really believe in God. And I just happened to catch that program, and these three scientists had changed once they got older and had a little more wisdom, they believed in God. And so I came back to Iowa City, I had to do a concert here, and I called up the university, said, because I knew that Dr. James Van Allen had, had come back here. I said, could you maybe give him my telephone number? I'd like to call him and talk with him. Well, make a long story short, I met him in a restaurant here in Iowa City, and we talked about religion. And I thought that is such an amazing story. And I said, what made you change from not believing in God and believing in God? And he explained it to me with his scientific knowledge. And these other three men, they, they had this great gift that all that they did, you know, he discovered the radiation, radiation belt out there in space. And he was a great man, and he did a lot. And Norman Borlaug did a lot. And I'm going to ask you people there, what was the first profession with mankind? What was the first professional? Want to take some guesses? Oh. <laughs> no. That wasn't the first one. The first profession was a farmer. God told Adam to take care of the garden. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they said it's true. The first profession was a, a farmer. And I often say, I think the two highest paid professions, now I'm an opera singer and I'm a teacher, etc., etc. But the highest paid people should be teachers and farmers. What do teachers do? Exactly what the Bible told us, to get an education. What do farmers do? They feed us directly or indirectly. And when you mention the situation about something that I did to help the children you know, in Africa with malaria, when I sang for the grand finale concert in 1910 in Johannesburg, before I went up to sing, the moderator mentioned that every 30 seconds, a child in Africa was dying from a mosquito bite, malaria. And 90% of all of the malaria deaths in the world were in sub-Saharan Africa. And one million children were dying every year. This was 2010, and it was heavy on my heart, and finally, in 2012, 2013, my wife and I flew out to Washington, D.C., to the United Nations Foundation to get some real factual information. Is this true? Well, it was true. 
and they said one million children were dying every year. I said, how many children have died in the last 20 years? 20 million little children died. So I decided I wanted to try to raise some money to help save these children's lives. And a very dear farmer friend of mine, who's still alive and who is a great humanitarian, my wonderful friend, Harry Stein. I went to Harry and I said, Harry, I don't want you to give me any money. I'll work for it. And I talked to him and he and another man named Suku, some of you know who he is. They said, Simon, we'll recommend you go talk to some people. And because of this man, who's a very dear friend of mine now, helped me to raise, but I worked for it and had students sing it with me. We raised $532,000, and we sent every penny to the United Nations Foundation, and some people anonymously, I don't know till this day, put, read and heard what I had done here in Iowa, and I did a big concert at the Hilton Coliseum, and that one night's concert, we raised $100,000. We had 1,000 high school students who sang Christmas songs with us. We raised $100,000. And then somebody else sent another $100,000. And I don't know, I have a letter from the United Nations that they wanted to remain anonymous. But I mention that because Iowa's had three very prominent people. And both of them were farmers and one was a scientist. And that's why I'm happy that my dear friend Harry Stein is here tonight. And I just say we are all put on this earth to help one another and to love one another. And music, like my daughter's little statement said, love is the music of the soul. That's why I'm here today. And God is love and love is God. And so, yes, we help. My wife and I give lots of scholarships all around this country and the state of Iowa. We just put on this world, those of us who are blessed to help one another. So now I want to thank you for your attention. I'm scared to look at my wife because she comes at these things sometimes and she said, Simon, you talked too long. So I'm going to look over at my wife and if she does like that, <laughs> That means that it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> oh, she did it. <laughs> well, I want to thank all of you. Yeah. Really, I want to thank the University of Iowa. I want to thank the president and you and everybody who made it possible for me to receive this wonderful award that I will dedicate to my Grand Slate parents and my parents. And I always... Thank God for all that I get. And I want to thank the University of Iowa because, as I said earlier, they were some of the happiest days in my life when I came to the University of Iowa starting back in 1957. And in spite of a little, some bumps along the way, I still love the University of Iowa and Iowa. And I want to close it with, which will sound like a very strange, but not really sad because it has a happy ending. Mr. Kellis, I didn't know this, 
until I'd already been singing for many years, but John Backus, his Greek friend right back there, knew about it. He never told me. And Mr. Kellis just told me this a few years ago. Jaime Voxman was from Centerville, Iowa, and my uncle, Carl Jeter, went to school with Jaime Voxman. Jaime played the clarinet, and Carl Jeter played the violin. But when Jaime was the head of the music department here, I didn't know this. Mr. Kellis never told me until John Backus told me, and I confronted Mr. Kellis a number of years ago. Jaime liked Mr. Kellis. He hired him. But he said to Mr. Kellis, why are you wasting your time with Estes? He said, he doesn't really have much talent. He'll probably end up being a bartender. <laughs> but you want to know something? When I came back to Iowa, I went to see Jaime. And I even saw him a few months before he passed away in a residence out west of town. He and I had the most beautiful conversation. He said, Simon, I'm so proud of you. I said, well, Mr. Foxman, I'm proud of you, and I'm glad you were the head of the School of Music or whatever our conversation was. I said, I see you still have your clarinet there. Do you still play it? He said, yes, I still play it sometimes. But he was a wonderful man. And even though he didn't see something along the way, he didn't have to ever say, I'm sorry. Because when we met, when I was older and a professional singer, my heart met Jaime's heart. And we talked about music. And Mr. Stark, some of you will know the name, Harold Stark, mm -hmm. he was the head of the music department. He was the man that said, I couldn't sing in the choir, and I didn't have any talent. But in the mid-70s, I went to San Antonio to sing with the symphony orchestra, and I did all these Wagnerian and Verdi arias, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know that Harold Stark had retired and had gone to San Antonio, Texas, after the performance, and I hadn't seen Harold Stark for many years. He came back after the performance, and there was Mr. Stark, and he did this. Give me the other hand. I'm going to shake your hand. <laughs> he said, well, Simon, I see you've done quite well for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that, I'm, that was so touching. I really could see it. And I told this story to a few people. They said, why didn't you wipe him out? He said, I said, no, no, no. That's not the loving way to be. He didn't have to come back. I didn't even know I was in the audience. And he shook my hand. And he said, well, Simon, you've done quite well for yourself. So I'm going to keep trying to do well for Mr. Jaime Voxman from Centerville, Iowa, and from Harold Stark from the University of Iowa, and for music. And remember the last thing I'm going to tell you. My daughter's little plaque she gave me, love is the music of the soul. So Jaime's soul and my soul and Harold Stark's soul and Charles Kellis's soul 
they have all come together because of music and education. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, University of Iowa. Thank you, Joan, and all of you. God bless all of you. I love you, and let's keep music and education going, okay? Thank you. Thank you.